Welcome to Ad Voices Education International's podcast. My name is uh, Timo Linsmeyer. I'm the head of communications at EI. I'm very pleased to be joined for today's sessions by David Edwards, EI's General Secretary. Before becoming General Secretary in March, David was Deputy General Secretary for seven years and responsible for the work in education policy, in advocacy, research and communications. And before joining EI, David was an Associate Director at the National Education Association in the United States. Before that, he worked as an education specialist in the organization American States and he began his career as a public high school teacher. And last but not least, David has a PhD in education and policy and leadership from the University of Maryland. So that's quite a CV. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks, Timo. It's nice to be here. Um, so you've been uh, EI's General Secretary for nine months now. Um, and how do you feel? You know, you've met a lot of affiliates uh, all around the world. You've given speeches at important conferences. You've advocated for teachers everywhere you go, basically. And what did you enjoy most during the time and what did surprise you the most? Well, uh, nine months, huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. I think that what I've enjoyed most, um, there's sort of two, two parts to what I've enjoyed most. The first part is getting to be with our members, getting to really see where they work, what the issues that they're organizing around, struggling with, or the, the great wins they're achieving. To not just meet the, the, the people who generally come to the executive board or, or to our conferences, but to actually meet rank and file members and leaders in these organizations, the people that come up to me after a speech and chat with me on the sides. I really find that to be tremendous, really great. The other thing that I, I enjoy is the opportunity to, to lead and be with staff and to hear their ideas and try to think about for the next phase that EI is going into how do, we, how do we take all that good learning and those good ideas and the deep experiences of the staff, both at head office and across the regions, and transform that into something that is, is aligned to our values, that is comprehensive and clear, that resonates deeply uh, with our members and is, is, is something that we can do? How do we, how do we bring focus and purpose? And how do we get everyone excited and mobilized around that, that purpose and that focus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've, you've uh, said the next phase that EI is going into, and uh, we're having our, our World Congress coming up in, uh, in July next year. We are? Yes. Oh, <laughs> you know, going into full speed with the preparations, and the Expo has already adopted the, the theme for the, for the Congress, uh, Education, the Unions uh, Taking the Lead, and they've also adopted the, the sub-themes, Advancing the Profession, Ensuring Free Quality Education for All, uh, Promoting Democracy and Human Trade Union Rights. And to me, it feels like these topics um, describe, you know, how the, the world's education unions lead on the three main pillars uh, that make up education, the status of the profession, the state of education systems, and the underlying principles of democracy and, and rights, right? So could you maybe elaborate a little bit further on, on your thinking around this, uh, these three pillars and, and what they mean for EI and uh, its work uh, in the next, uh, next four years? Sure. So it's educators and their and their unions taking the lead. And I would address that per, that point first. So mm -hmm. that's the, the, the main theme and then the, the sub-pillars that I'll get into that. But when I travel or when I read a newspaper or when I listen in a subway to a conversation near me, there is a general feeling, not just here in Brussels, but right around the world, 
that the planet itself is going through a leadership crisis. That at the root of the environmental crisis, the root of the financial crisis, um, the root of the education crisis, the root of the refugee crisis, is a leadership crisis. Mm -hmm. And what I feel is that at a time when it has become so much easier to communicate, people are trying to find opinions that support their own underlying convictions, their underlying their own opinions in many ways. It's not a time particularly when ideas get challenged. It's a time that is very easy, easily manipulated by a certain type of leadership, which is an opportunistic leadership um, that leans towards authoritarianism, that drives fear, that plays off of people's fears about the future, their insecurities about the present. And it tries to propose easy, if not completely false, solutions to the challenges that we're all facing. Mm -hmm. As we think about the sort of vacuum in terms of global leadership, and we think about digitalization, we think about the attacks on truth and facts, we think about the attacks on democracy, we think about all these different decisions and choices that our students have to make, that our communities need to make, uh, that our politicians need to have the courage to make. But yet, if you, you look to the opinion pages, if you listen to the speeches, you find that there isn't really the kind of leadership that is anchored in the values and the principles that have gotten us out of the dark ages. And I'm an explicit believer in universal rights in finding the commonalities of, of human beings and, and through that dialogue and, and focus on, on supporting each other, finding greater dignity and solutions collaboratively. So I'm, I'm unabashed in, in that. I think there's sort of like an anti-intellectualism. People don't have the time to listen to deep or long analyses. They don't have the time to sort of try on different ways of thinking or knowing. And they, I already mentioned there's sort of the selective listening to things that support what we already, or the biases that we already hold. If you look around the world and you look at the crises and you think, well, if the politicians aren't going to be able to do this, the religious leaders aren't going to be able to do this, the young people are organizing themselves, but they don't necessarily have the structures. Um, there, are, there are social movements that are afoot. Many are fantastic in terms of drawing attention to a given thing at a given moment, but they don't necessarily have have the structures, the policies, the capacity, um, the legitimacy to transform those into action. The only profession that has both the wherewithal in terms of the, the legitimacy that they have because of where they come from, their communities, because they know people in their communities, the knowledge and wisdom that they have because they know their disciplines, they know history, they know their areas, the way they can communicate because they've been trained in communicating and their job is basically to communicate and to think, to help people think and to question. Mm -hmm. But all of that anchored in an in, in ethos, in a, in an, a sort of a, an ethical frame about why we do all of this and how do we marshal that knowledge for the, for the common good. And I think those are teachers. And more specifically, I believe it is the organized, unionized global teacher movement that needs to lead right now because we are so connected you know across all of the countries where we operate we're in those communities we can share what's happening with each other we can speak truth to power we can educate we can dream we can stand up and resist 
we can organize, mobilize, we can vote, we can run for office, we can do a number of different things that I don't believe, if I look around the world, another profession or another vocation or another group of people that are solely committed to, to a singular purpose like we are, a couple of, of very important purposes. So it's, it's really down to us. If we really want to stop climate change, if we really want to reduce our carbon footprint, it's going to be the next generation that's going to make those choices. It's going to be the current generation that is going to put pressure on political leaders to have the courage. It's the current generation that's going to look at the supply chains and find more innovative ways of producing energy, distributing that energy more equitably to take a look at the consumption pa patterns um, and to have people question those. Same thing on refugees and, and mobility. Same thing on human rights and women's rights, LGBTI rights. All these, all these things, I think it's, it's educated in their unions. They're going to have to take the lead. And I don't believe anyone's going to ask us to, because that's also part of the new normal in this sort of flat, hot, crowded world. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of people struggling and organizations struggling for their brand to be recognized, for their one topic to break through. But they don't necessarily have the trust and they don't have the courage of their convictions to actually lead through by practice and lead how they treat each other and lead in how they bargain and negotiate and how they practically apply all those things that they care about. So I think it's a really apt moment for us as the global organized union movement, teacher union movement, to say, all right, we are going to take the lead. We are not going to ask anyone's permission. We have a vision because we're everywhere. Our eyes are everywhere. We have this collective knowledge and wisdom um, that we've been working and combining for centuries, really, in terms of honing our practice and pedagogy and skill. And so that's why it's up to us to take the lead. I think at the same time, those three areas where the executive board has decided that we really need to lead make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I've already talked about democracy, both in terms of what happens in our schools, what happens in our societies, and what happens in our own unions. Democratic norms and values are under siege and under threat, and people need to understand it's not an elective. It's not a, a silhouette of a founding father that mm -hmm. you sort of trace and put on your wall. It's not patriotism. It's not nationalism. It is something much more fundamental than that. And the trade union movement has been, since its beginning, the main fighters for, for democracy and defenders of democracy. Even when we disagree, even with whatever systems sort of develop out of that, that the institutions are there, that the values are there, that the behaviors are there, that the knowledge is there. And that coupled with that and anchored, what is that, is anchored in, in inalienable human rights, trade union rights, and that those must be asserted. They don't just need to be defended. They need to be asserted. Mm -hmm. People need to be reminded of them. And so one of the main pillars of Congress will be us reaffirming our commitment to those core democratic human trade union right principles and taking the lead on ensuring that the next generation understands why they're important, mm -hmm. understands how important our profession is uh, for democracy. And we have a number of, of really practical, but also philosophical debates um, in mind. And we think we probably will come out with an action plan around democracy for education. I'm quite excited about. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this will be one of the main areas where EI will become known at a place where it seems, at the moment in time where everyone has their price an independent teacher trade union movement dedicated to asserting rights and defending democracy. I 
think is vitally necessary. I think the second pillar that you mentioned has to do with our profession, with mm -hmm. our status. That's both in terms of our teaching conditions as well as students' learning conditions, but it's, it has to do with the fact that we are much more than simple content delivery robots. What we do is much more than simply take a, some bytes of information and mm -hmm. move them from point A to point B. I gave a speech not too long ago, I guess, at the Global Education Meeting, where I was asked by the World Bank uh, Director of Education, what does society owe teachers and what do teachers owe society? But I, I ended it with a story from my own neighborhood uh, at a time when there was a, a sniper at loose in, my, in our neighborhood in, outside of Washington, D.C. It was a moment where teachers were making human shields out of from school buses to school doors to get students safely into school. So they were basically risking the ultimate for their students. And I think society needs to risk the ultimate for teachers. Our status are, I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of surveys. We just did our status of teachers report. We can see that there is a bit of a shift in places where people thought teachers were being better remunerated than they are, so in terms of the value that we get. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing that our professional autonomy, which I also believe is crucial for defending democracy and, and asserting rights, is being challenged by many of the same authoritarian populists that we see in other places, but in terms of our classrooms, in order to be able to teach truth, to collaborate, to work together, to think of students as more than test scores, but mm -hmm. to really try to have critical conversations with them and, and, and meaningful learning take place. And I think we need to be the ones who decide what it is to be a teacher, what it is to be an educator, what it is to be an academic, what it is to be education support personnel. We have labor standards. We have environmental standards. No one questions those. Well, yeah, a lot of people question those, <laughs> yes. particularly my president, but I hate even saying that. But <laughs> when we talk about professional standards, there's a reticence because standard and standardization often get conflated and people can assume one is the other. Yes. But if you're worried about deprofessionalization, if you're worried about what we're seeing in terms of trends of, of particularly in poorer countries, teacher education budgets being cut, the time for teaching, the being taken out of the universities, the time for, for praxis being reduced, all of these different kinds of things, and also the idea that somehow technology can, or artificial intelligence can replace what we do. I think we also need to assert our professional rights and talk about why it is that we are teachers and why we do what we do and why we need the professional autonomy, why we need conducive environments for teaching and learning, why we need good uh, labor laws and protections, why we need social dialogue and bargain, collective bargaining, why we need to expand collective bargaining, the scope of it to include educational issues. And I think what that will do will be to set a marker in terms of where it is we want to go as a profession and why communities should trust us and why we should trust communities in working together and really getting deeper into, into communities, I think, is that's really, really important. So that's the status piece. And, and the last one is obviously where we work, which are the education systems. Mm -hmm. You know, For all the same things I was just explaining, whether that's because of what's happening around the financing of education, whether it's happening around authoritarian dictatorships trying to use curriculum to rewrite history, we need to defend the public education system, the, the, the space, and we need to make sure that we have predictable, sustainable financing. We need to make sure that we have good environments in those schools, that the right to education is upheld for all, particularly the most vulnerable, the hardest to reach. For the refugees, we need to make sure that those schools are welcoming, 
that the curriculums that are taught in those schools are, are both a window and a mirror for students in terms of being able to see the world but also understand themselves and mm -hmm. their place in it. That there's time that's there built into systems that encourage collaboration, research, investigation, questioning, creativity, all these kinds of things, critical thinking that we say we care about. Mm -hmm. So I think that from the where we work, the who we are, and the why we work, um, those are three really important pillars or streams that inform how and, and why and for what purpose we need to lead and mm -hmm. take the lead. And that is what the Congress will be about. It's, I'm very excited because we have, obviously, we'll have great plenary debates and discussions, but we'll also have organizing and strategy sessions. We'll have different streams for young members, for young leaders, so we can think about what they're doing at their local level and discussing that. But we'll also have opportunities for thinking about using these platforms that EI has helped to create and build and develop, institutional partnerships, things like that, to say, what can we do at the global level together to achieve these goals? How do we deliver on this? Mm -hmm. What do we do tomorrow when we go home? What's the first thing we're going to do? It's not going to be enough to just make a lot of speeches, but we'll have all sorts of training opportunities and we'll be hearing from people and we'll be collecting stories and we're going to be coming together, like I said, reaffirming our commitment that enough is enough. We're not going to ask for permission anymore. We are not going to play nice and just be the old school marms in, in some corner somewhere out of the way and out of mind. And we are, what I've said before, the wisdom workers that are going to lead. And the Congress is the place where we are going to come together and build something because we absolutely have to. Well, thank you very much. I think these are fascinating thoughts that highlight how much global decisions really have an impact at the national level. These are enormous challenges you describe and, and challenges for the wider union movement of that. Uh, the ITC, for example, just had their Congress. I'm thinking of keywords such as union renewal, youth, copyright, privatization. We've talked a lot about democracy. I'm sure there are other areas. How do you see the workers of the world coming together around these issues? Well, I think the workers of the world, I mean, I was in Copenhagen as well, and one of the main pushes that the ITUC, and that's the, the Confederation of All Trade Unions, Democratic Trade Unions around the world, was this acknowledgement that the current social contract is broken and it's not working. It's not working for working people. It's not working for poor people. And that the rules have been rigged to benefit a certain small segment. I can't even call them a segment. There's something, a minuscule segment of society. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult, uh, or it has been in the past quite difficult, to get people to realize just how rigged the system is. One step that we have to do, take, is what I call sort of the first step in the sort of realization of, 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 of the plan is we have to help people realize. We have to help wake people up to what's happening. And sometimes we have to translate rather complex terms that maybe if you heard on the news, you would flip channels and you wouldn't stay there. Yeah. But the underlying issues are far too important to allow some sort of you know, techno gook gargoyle monster to, to control the discourse around, right? I mean, you said copyright. Now, what is copyright? Copyright is essentially a way to protect the intellectual property, right, mm -hmm. of something. Yeah. So in its more, most innocuous way, 
you put copyright on something that you create. So as a as a producer, as a creator, you get the royalties or you get, you know, monies for those things. Yes, that's perfectly fine. However, many people get to put copyright protections on things that they've developed as part of being subsidized through public means, through public universities. Mm -hmm. They've done research. You know, I, I think that you have to think about it. Why, who gets to limit our access to sharing information? Yeah. So copyright reform, open access, open science, sort of uh, the democratization of science, mm -hmm. democratization of knowledge. We have to talk about it in those terms. Because who were the first ones that really got into this? It was the librarians. Mm -hmm. Talk about school marms in the corner. Talk about the shh, you know, librarian, <laughs> you know. These are the people that have basically brought down the big publishing companies and forced them into the open access space. Yes. Because there was no way you could stop a librarian from being adamant about people's right to information and to share, particularly things that, that the governments would want to clamp down on and call dangerous, right? <laughs> so yes. they read banned books. So copyright is a challenge, but we're working with the librarians. We're working with different groups that want to make exceptions to copyright. Right. So that our members do not have to pay fines or do not have to be worried about if they share a material or they show a movie or if they put a picture on a PowerPoint slide that somehow they're going to be liable for being sued or mm -hmm. sometimes far worse in some countries. They have this right. And where does that get discussed? Well, they get discussed at the World Intellectual Property Organization. So we have to go there and we have to organize and form alliances there and we have to work towards conventions that are going to serve the needs of our members and their students long term. Yeah. What was the other one that you, you talked about? Well, we talked about union renewal, well, you, about the youth movement and so on. Union renewal, um, I think, is one of the most exciting topics or issues. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, it's like breathing oxygen. Uh -huh. So do you, think, do you think breathing oxygen is important? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty much existential, <laughs> right? Union renewal is breathing oxygen. Mm -hmm. Union renewal is what we have. It's our breathing. It's how we as the union movement continually question and improve and uh, become more relevant and grow and have impact and power and influence and are able to achieve agendas for working people. Mm -hmm and wins. Union renewal is about thinking about why does the union exist? Where did it come from? Where is it going? Mm -hmm. Who needs to be at the table? How do we communicate these ideas? Who decides these ideas? How do we make sure that what we are doing is relevant to classroom teachers and professors and education workers in all corners of the globe so that they themselves go, you know what? I want to be part of that. I don't just want to pay dues to that organization. Mm -hmm. I want to get involved. I want to make sure that no teacher on the planet is jailed simply before, by holding a sign in a protest mm -hmm. or going, as happened in the Philippines, to protect some uh, vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that means we have to organize around ideas. That means it's not just, we do have to organize around and salaries and, and pay and benefits, of course. But for what end? Mm -hmm. To what end? I think people are hungry or looking for unions to lead. And um, a number of unions are already beginning this journey of renewal. Mm -hmm. And it's scary. It's scary because it's different. 
and of it's course. change. Yes. And sometimes you have to build things that might actually make you as a leader someday obsolete. But that's your legacy. That's the ladder you drop. That's the mentoring you do. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's the new knowledge you gain. I think renewal takes a number of different shapes, but it's absolutely the way we are unions are going to have the oxygen-rich blood that we need in order to carry this enormous agenda and enormous responsibility and lead the way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that sounds uh, a lot like the Congress has you know, a lot on its plate uh, next year, so maybe you have a, uh, a short message for all the delegates that are prepared to go there and, <laughs> and work on these issues. To all the delegates, who will be joining us in Bangkok in July of 2019 because you believe so much in what you do, why you do it and who you do it for, because solidarity isn't just a tradable commodity, because you know we can achieve great things together, come to Congress Give yourself to Congress. Be fully present and participate and take advantage in meeting people from all over the world who share these core values with you. Come and help us build and braid a new movement, an energized movement that can lead this planet into a better place and a better future. It's all going to start with us and we're not going to ask anyone's permission to do it. So come and help us lead the way. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the insights. Or Use the only Thai expression that I know, cop cum crap. Thank you. <laughs> cop cum crap. <laughs> yes, I, I'm sure that was with atrocious action, so sorry for our, to our Thai listeners, but thank you very much uh, for these words, and uh, we look forward to Congress next year. Me too. <laughs> Thanks, Timo. Thank you.